Voices. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to Season 2, Episode 19 of YDHTY, the podcast for the exhausted political majority who likes their conversations in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you dig what you hear today, please tell one friend you think might like it too. I know there are tons of you out there and I want you here. Now, we are going to be taking a short break for the next two weeks in December. May have a surprise at the end, but we're going to be pulling some great episodes from the vault, episodes you may not have heard before from the very beginnings of YDHTY when it was just a little podling. So check those out. That should keep you satisfied throughout the holiday season. Now, we are in the final of our four-part series on term limits for the Supreme Court. And I entered into this series being fairly pro-term limits, only to do a 180 after learning the impact this could have on constitutional law and the history of the court in general. And if you haven't listened to the past three episodes, I would strongly encourage it, as it's a great primer to this one. Now, we are ending this series, as we always do, with Arjun Murthy of The Factual, the only news site that lets readers filter their stories by credibility and political bias to get the best news. And The Factual ran a poll on term limits for Supreme Court justices not too long ago, so I wanted to get a feel for how my opinion stacked up against theirs. Spoiler alert, it did not. But this being said, we discussed some gaps in people's understanding of the court that might change the way we think about the body and their role in determining policy. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. So, today, Arjun, we are going to talk about the poll you ran on the Supreme Court. And before we get into that, though, would you indulge me with allowing me to give my 30-second pitch on what the factual is and what it does? Please do. Okay, thank you. See, this is what I do, people. I invite co-founders and CEOs on, and then I talk about their company. So, dear listener, we are all tired of bias in media, and we are all just looking for the facts. And it seems like any time we turn on the TV or open up a newspaper, it's another piece of clickbait designed to get us enraged. The factual exists to counter that. So what the factual does is it allows you to sort news sources by credibility and by bias so you can get the most accurate news. How'd I do, Arjun? That's solid. In the last few weeks, we asked who finds the factual valuable. And it seems that one of the designations is that they're not politically extreme. Mm. It's folks that feel that both the left and the right are going a little too extreme for their comfort. Mm. And they're trying to find somewhere that resonates with them better because yep. they, they agree and accept parts of different parts of the political spectrum. They're not sort of uniformly left or right. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the key attributes of people that find the factual valuable. But there are people from all political stripes absolutely who subscribe to the factual. Yeah. And, and you know, one of my favorite parts of the discussion. So every day you run a poll. And I respond on them, but I like to pick the ones that I find really interesting and dig into them a little bit further. And the poll you ran recently 
was on term limits in the Supreme Court. And it effectively asked the readership, should the Supreme Court have term limits, correct? That's right. Yeah, we asked this a few weeks ago, and we got a huge response. And given that our readership spans you know, all 50 states in the U.S. and is spread across about 3,000 different zip codes, we get a pretty nice cross-section of America voting on these things. So I'd like to think we're seeing, maybe a, a getting a sense of what people really think in this country about an issue. And so the, the thing I found interesting about this, right, is I was a hard yes for term limits, right? So this is actually Supreme Court term limits was something I was turned on to about a year ago. Love the idea. Answered yes in the factual discussion. Provided my own answer, right? Then started researching. Did three episodes on the Supreme Court. I am a hard no now. <laughs> I would love to hear about this transformation. I think it's going to be very interesting. Yes. We are going to get into that. Before we do that, though, I need to ask. So what was the outcome of that poll? So the outcome was 66% uh, yes, 26% no, and 8% unsure. And to give you context, most of our polls, it's rare to get a very significant majority. A lot of times it's close mm -hmm. to 55, 50, you know, that kind of stuff. So 66% yeah. saying yes suggests there's probably broad support for term limits. Which is interesting, too, because I know a lot of times it tends to be fairly split down the middle. Oddly enough, the polls that I seem to pick to talk about are the ones that have the hardest split. But but it's it's not usual for your polls to really have that level of support for a particular policy, correct? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the reality is so many policies that we discuss mm -hmm. in the show and, and just day to day life are complicated and yeah. the policy, if you decide whether it's going to impact one community or another, there are unintended consequences that you might not realize. So it's rare for people to be uniformly saying, oh, of course, that's such an obvious answer. We should do X. And this one, the term limits one, was surprising. Like I said, that it seems to, you know, two out of three people saying, actually, yeah, there should be term limits. So what were the yes votes saying? One was... A lot of people saying it's not even so much term limits as maybe age limits and saying, you know, some of these justices, they're up in their late 70s, 80s. Are they really at the top of their game anymore? And so maybe that's one reason for a term limit or an age limit. So if you've got someone on the Supreme Court who sort of grew up three or four decades ago, is it possible, for example, that they would be unappreciative of some of the current issues that come up in society because they're like, what? What is this? Non I've never even heard of it kind of thing. So that was another reason why people said term limits might be good because these people might be a little out of touch. Another uh, reason that they said is when you don't have term limits, then what you have is the behavior we get now where uh, a president could wield tremendous power over the future of the country by putting in a justice in their term. So, you know, both President Obama's, President Trump, they had their chances to pick a few judges. And these people last for life, we think, which means so much case law gets to be decided by them. And it'll affect us for decades, maybe half a century. Is that necessarily the right call? Uh, so that's another reason that people said, I think a term limit might be bad. So that was 
very much in line with the conversation I had with the first guest in this series, Gabe Roth, who's with an organization called Fix the Court. So first thing they focus on are just ethics and transparency. And what I learned actually, which was really interesting, is that not just Supreme Court justices, but federal judges very often rule on cases where they have a financial conflict of interest. Yes. And there's no transparency or what transparency exists is too delayed and too opaque to really make a difference. So, you know, what I learned is that very often these disclosures aren't made public for like two to three years. And when they are, you have to go pay 10 cents a page to print them out on your own computer. What? Yes. It's crazy. So it's from like, you know, obviously it goes way back to like when this was all done by photocopier. But if you want to access the documents on the website, they will charge you 10 cents a page. So it becomes in prohibitively expensive yeah. for your average citizen to keep tabs on what they're doing. The issue of cognitive decline did come up too. And I would say too, to kind of your point there, like I, I don't know whether the best jurisprudence is made when somebody is working while undergoing treatment for cancer, for example. True. That, you know, yeah. And that's right. And that's not a knock on on Ruth Bader Ginsburg by any means. I mean, she was very dedicated to what she did, and maybe that's just what she wanted to do. Maybe she just wanted to die on the bench. But there should be a better system in place for monitoring folks for cognitive decline or monitoring folks for situations that might not allow them to focus as well on the job as they otherwise would. That's right. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think most people in the U.S. hold Supreme Court judges in reasonably high esteem. These are extraordinarily gifted, qualified, hardworking, impressive people. And we would love for them to be at their the top of their game throughout their tenure on the Supreme Court. They're, they're exceptional people. But if there is a decline, we should find out. And it's hard for them to know. So I agree with you. And it's a difficult conversation to have because there's accusations of ageism in there. Right. And it was a lot easier at the founding of our country when you didn't live they would long. just conveniently die of yellow fever <laughs> at age 50. You know, that was that was a, a much better mechanism. But we can't go back to the good old days, Arjun. That's right. So <laughs> we have to figure that out. How about the no folks? The no folks also had a, a bunch of good points. So, you know, there were, first there's a, sort of a group of people that are traditionalists that said, look, this is not what the founding fathers meant and we shouldn't yeah. change that. And there's there's always a segment of the population that uh, believes yeah. that there was a lot of intelligence in the way the Constitution was built and all of these rules were built. Don't mess with it. You know, another part is that the minute you set term limits, if you were to allow re-election or mm-hmm. being able to come back to the bench after, uh, mm-hmm. let's say you have a 20-year term, but then they'll it'll become a political position and then they'll start worrying about getting back onto the bench, which is exactly the yeah. reason why we have term limits and we don't want that to happen. There's sort of a, you know, there's, there's some comments around, look, it just, it makes that branch of government so independent from everyone else. It's so much better mm-hmm. than the others because they don't have to care about re-election. They don't have to care about public opinion. They don't have to care about even what each other thinks. A lot of the justices, I think, aren't necessarily, they're not afraid to go off against each other. They sort of operate as close as we think to a principled individual, ruling on principles they believe. And anything that we do to muck with that really messes with that system. The Supreme Court is probably, is, is most likely held in higher regard than the other two branches of government 
Uh, and so folks are saying, do you really want to mess with this one? That's the, the one good thing we still have here. You know, it's funny because originally I wasn't too scared of the influence public opinion might have over justices under term limits. Like it just for some reason just didn't bother me at the time. And then I spoke with Susanna Sherry. She's a professor of law over at Vanderbilt. And she actually wrote a paper where they modeled out what Supreme Court jurisprudence over Roe v. Wade would have been in a Supreme Court with term limits. And what they did is they took the popular, the the popular proposed scenario is an 18-year term Mm -hmm. where every president or every term a president gets two appointments, right? And that's the idea. And what she found is Roe v. Wade would have been overturned, then reinstated, Hmm. and then overturned again if uh, we lived in a scenario where the Supreme Court had term limits. And the, the interesting thing wasn't so much, you know, well, abortion's illegal, then it's legal, then it's illegal, then it's legal. It wasn't so much the, the how you fall on the issue of abortion, but it was more just how do you prosecute the violation of a law that is no longer prosecutable. You know, how do you, because criminal cases can very often last years. They can last beyond one presidential administration. And so if you have an issue where you got an abortion when it was illegal, but then the Supreme Court overturns it and now it's legal again, like how do you, how do you handle that? And and abortion was the case that was used because obviously that's the most contentious one. That's really yeah. what, when most people talk, think about the Supreme Court, they think about mainly Roe v. Wade. So that's the one she used. But you know, there's a whole bunch of legal instability. The term that she used and it's been used by a lot of folks is constitutional whiplash. But all three of my guests, all three of my guests said a huge problem was the appearance of partisanship in the court, that that is the thing that could potentially kill the credibility of the body. This is a little subjective, perhaps, but I think sometimes we overestimate the partisanship of the courts. Yes, there are some uh, Supreme Court justices that are ideologically clearly on one end of the spectrum. You can think of Clarence Thomas as very definitively on the conservative end of the spectrum and Sotomayor as being, you know, very definitively on the liberal side. But I think it's unfair to characterize most of the judges that way. And if you look at their voting record, for example, Neil Gorsuch, even Justice Kavanaugh, they haven't always ruled in the way that you would expect a conservative-minded judge to rule. And let me see if I can dig it up. Dan, in one of the factual newsletters, we had this chart on the fraction of time justices agree with each other. And it was surprisingly high across all nine judges. I'll put that in the show notes too. It, it'll make you feel a little bit better about these justices that we think they're so ideologically bent, but the reality is most of them take their position very, very seriously and have gotten that position because they understand the law extraordinarily well. And they're here to rule on matters of law not matters of ideology and what they necessarily have come to believe in their lives. I think we should give them the benefit of the doubt to some degree. I understand, of course, their rulings have huge impacts on all of us. So I can understand angst about how they might rule. But maybe with one or two exceptions, I think most of them really are trying to say, what is the right law 
what's the right principle to uphold? Not, I believe in a woman's right to choose or a woman's right to this or that. I don't think they always think that way. I 100% agree with that. And that was echoed with everybody I spoke with as well. Here's the funny thing, though. If you go back to the Civil War era, the Supreme Court was highly partisan and nobody cared. So, yeah, it was crazy. So to give you an idea, Abraham Lincoln appointed his campaign manager to the court, opened up the court to a 10th justice, and the chief justice of the Supreme Court, Sam and Chase, who came a little bit after Lincoln, openly pursued the Democratic nomination for president while serving as Supreme Court justice. Huh. Yeah. So people expected the Supreme Court to be partisan. It was viewed as partisan as the presidency or the Congress. And the two key differences were, number one, the Supreme Court was far less powerful. Mm-hmm. So there's there's this transition from the concept of judicial review, where the Supreme Court is one body responsible for interpreting the Constitution, to judicial supremacy, where they are the final arbiter yeah. of what is constitutional and what isn't. And when that happens, there is a requirement now for the Supreme Court to be more than just another partisan body. And so now you can't just nominate someone because they handed out flyers for you during your campaign. Like you have to, you know, there has to be some history of working in and ruling on the law. But I found that part hysterical. Now, the second thing, which was super interesting, is that partisanship changed because there wasn't the concept of static, immortal parties that there is now. Like people expected their party to die out. If you're listening, go back and look at the parties that were running for the presidency in the post-revolution to the Civil War era, you're going to see a number of different names there. And then it just stays Democratic and Republican going forward. And because of that, people weren't so worried about a justice's party because that party was expected to die. And again, what we have now, and this was covered in the last episode with Rachel Sheldon, who's a historian at Penn State, she was saying that parties once were very local and very policy-driven. They're now driven from the top down. And so, you know, I think a lot of the angst over this, in my mind, is that we have a very powerful court and we have very powerful static parties that aren't necessarily listening to people at the grassroots level. Yeah. And so those two things combined, I think, can create a lot of anxiety. 40%, folks. That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, 
If you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. By the way, I just uh, sent you that image uh, on the justices. So I think most people would be really surprised to see that Justice Sotomayor and Justice Thomas, who are, like I said, probably the two ends of the spectrum, have agreed with each other 50% of the time. Okay. Half the time, they actually agree with each other. And these are people who ideologically are as far apart as you might imagine. And then if you take Justice Kavanaugh, he agreed with Justice Gorsuch, both conservative, about 70%, which is about the same that Kavanaugh agreed with Kagan, who is a liberal, about 70%. So I think this is to say, you know, maybe we worry too much sometimes that these justices, like, oh my God, Roe v. Wade is definitely going down or is definitely going to be upheld because of this makeup. And I don't know any definite anything. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I think these justices, maybe with one or two exceptions, most of them are going to really look at the issue very closely. That was pretty much what I got from the folks I spoke with. Nobody really said that partisanship had infected the court yet, Mm -hmm. but there was a concern about it. Yeah. There was a big concern that it would happen because once that happens, then that's a big problem. Yeah. And one thing I'd, I'd point out is that the feeder system for justices is becoming more partisan. Mm-hmm. So the Republican Party has been very good at making sure their president nominates folks from the Federalist Society, yeah. which has a particular bent. The Democrats have their equivalent, but they've been a little less successful at it, but they're working on it. And I guess the good news here is that we have justices who are fairly young. So hopefully by the time that we need another Supreme Court justice, we're not dealing with this hyper-partisan feeder system that nominates people who might be a little more radical, might be a you little know, more the, partisan. The interesting thing is, even that, I sometimes wonder if we might be worrying a bit too much yet. So if you think about- You think so? Well, if you think about President Trump, like you said, he did a very good job of appointing justices to open positions. And no surprise, they tended to be supposedly conservative-leaning, you can argue, were they very far right or what have you. But then when the courts were called upon to weigh in on the question about election fraud, and many of the justices that these cases were up Mm -hmm. in front of were people appointed by President Trump, were people influenced by President Trump. They didn't rule in his favor. So I'm sure there's going to be a few that are bad, but perhaps the majority of them are actually just trying to do a good job. And the ones that aren't, great, we should call them out and fire them and recuse them and all these things. But maybe most of them are actually pretty good. I don't know. Just my guess. Yeah. You make a fair point, which is I think we have to distinguish between partisan and corrupt. Yeah. Because you can have a partisan opinion that is constitutional and is legal. You know, it can be debated, yeah. but it's not corrupt. I think you know, one of the things that came out of this conversation, especially because I was 
you know, thinking about Trump specifically in his effort to overturn the election is how difficult it is to corrupt the democratic system. And the courts play a big part in that role because again, you have lifetime appointments, so there's really nothing you can do to influence them. Yeah. There's no future career they have to worry about. And there's so many of them. Well, it's a bit of a tangent, but you know, uh, a parallel that I think is interesting is the tenure system in universities. Mm -hmm. Why do we have tenured professors in universities? I, th I believe it goes back a few centuries where a lot of universities were tied in with the church. Mm -hmm. And it was very hard to go and say something that would go against the church. You would probably get fired or, or maybe thrown in some sort of prison. I mean, most of us know about Galileo and astronomers that said, you know, the earth isn't the center of the solar system. And you're like, well, sorry, yeah. bud, you're going into jail for a long time. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a pattern. That's right. And so to avoid people from being afraid to speak the truth, they came up with the tenure system and said, once you've accomplished a certain level in your field, that's it. We can't fire you short of doing something illegal. And not even the church can touch you. And that turned out to be a good decision. And of course, tenure has its issues as well. But I think on the whole, we want our tenured faculty to be really bold and to say, I think this is hogwash for the following reasons. And I'm not afraid if I'm unpopular and you all hate me for it, but I'm saying what I believe to be true. And I think that's the parallel perhaps to lifetime appointments with the justice as well. They shouldn't care about public opinion. They shouldn't care about follows and likes and tweets and all the crap that we sometimes get involved. They're like, I don't know. I don't care. Yeah. I rule on the law. This is what I see. This is how I interpret it. I may be wrong, but I'm doing my very best. Mm -hmm. That seems like a pretty good setup. I'd agree with you. And also, you know, the role of the court is to be counter-majoritarian. The role of the court is to say, hey, you know, maybe public opinion is in favor of, for example, on 9-11, you know, holding people indefinitely without trial at Guantanamo Bay. Or maybe public opinion back in the 1950s was that schools should be segregated racially. Right. And the Supreme Court is there to override that when it's unconstitutional. And 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 I think that's important. You know, one one last point I'll make on this is every guest said partisanship and the appearance of partisanship could be a problem. And as I took a look at the bigger picture, I, I realized the the problem is maybe less in the justices and more in the nomination process. Yeah. It's you know, think about it. It's more in the fact that we channel these folks through this hyperpartisan Senate, which now really exists to either enact their agenda if they're in the majority or stymie the agenda of the majority, one or the other. And so, of course, every appointment's going to be contentious. And of course, every Supreme Court nominee is going to be accused of being a partisan hack. Yeah. There's a whole media apparatus to assist with it. So I would say, like, the big takeaway I have from all this is. Maybe we're looking in the wrong place. And maybe when we talk about reforming the court, maybe what we really ought to think about is like, how is the process that gets them there infected? And how is that undermining the credibility? Because I think, as you brought up, that once the justices get in there, on the whole, they tend to rule relatively inconsistent when it comes to partisanship. You know, funnily enough, I remember during the nomination of Justice Neil Gorsuch, and the Democrats yeah. came out pretty hard against him perhaps not as hard again as Justice Kavanaugh because there was a lot more scandal and, and brouhaha. But I remember looking at Gorsuch's background and thinking, this guy is eminently qualified. I mean, yeah. really, really qualified. And yeah, I 
could pick a few cases. There was something about the rights of independent truckers and he ruled a certain way and basically sort of in favor of companies over truckers. So it showed he was like mm -hmm. more corporate-y in that sense. But even that, you really read the ruling carefully. And I thought the guy tried to do what he thought was right. You can disagree with him, but I don't think he was a corporate shill per se. So it just yeah. feels to me like the nomination process sometimes becomes more about scoring points. And hey, look, I knew they were going to get their guy, but I did my best to punch a few times and, you know, point out his or her weakness. Or, you know, it was our person. We knew we, she was going to get into the courts. So we made sure to amplify her really good qualities versus mm -hmm. really holding her accountable and challenging some questions. Like the thing uh, we, you know, Diane Hessen, who you and I spoke to yesterday, talked about the yeah. Kavanaugh hearings being a media circus. That's what it feels like on all of these nominations. It feels like everyone's yeah. doing things for the likes or, or the lols, I guess it's called. I don't know. Um, yeah. Versus really, like, forget everyone that's watching. I really want to ask you the following questions because I think it will help us understand how you think on these issues better. It doesn't feel yeah. like that's the way questions are asked anymore. No. It's, did you own the libs? Yeah. Did you, you know, that's like, that's, that's uh, the, uh, so the right, that's like the only qualification and it's, it's that way on the left as well. You can um, tell the, the stupidity of a question being asked by the length of the question. The longer it is, mm -hmm. the more the person's trying to make a point in their question rather than ask a genuine question. If both sides don't know who the other side would nominate for the Supreme Court, shame on them. Yeah. Like they already know who these people are. They've already been briefed. What questions are you going to ask them? Yeah. You know, after all they've been through. They didn't, you know, they didn't even used to do Supreme Court hearings. Oh, really? They didn't even, yeah, they never did. They never did hearings. They didn't do it until there was this one contentious hearing sometime at the turn of the 20th century. And that's when they start. And that's just, then they became ritual after that. But prior to that, they never did them because who? it doesn't matter. Like, it really doesn't matter. Like, you already know everything you're going to know about this person. So why? It's, I mean, now it's just theater, you know? Yeah. And you mentioned Diane Hessen. Should we give a sneak? You want to do that? So uh, sure. So cool. Yeah, we can. Yeah. So dear listener, you know, Arjun and I have been working together for a while. Factual and YDHTY are very aligned. And so Arjun and I are going to be launching a new podcast. YDHTY will still exist, so don't get scared. You'll still get YDHTY every Thursday. However, Arjun and I will be launching a new podcast in the new year called Unbiased. And Arjun, do you want to give a synopsis for the folks listening? Yeah. Unbiased is a podcast for people who feel that they neither fit in on the hard left or the hard right. And they feel alienated by the way media caters to both extremes. They want to find all the facts on, on the issues so that they can reach their own conclusions. I think typically Dan and I will interview one or two guests in an episode, uh, try to focus on one issue and, and go deep into it, mm -hmm. but try to really illuminate the complexity of an issue, much like we do, frankly, here, Dan, on, on YDHUI. Like you could say something like term limits. We could have easily been very partisan and said, oh, it's so obviously that you should have it or you shouldn't. 
But yeah. rather we take the time to say it's complicated and there's pros and cons and all the stuff. Let's talk to some experts. Let's hear a bunch of things. And then now you, dear listener, good luck. You have some of the facts. Go go for it. That, I think that's a good way yep. to do it. Yeah, we did our, we had our first uh, recording yesterday. It was fantastic. We're going to have a couple episodes teed up for you in the new year. So I will make an announcement for that when that is live and ready to go. And to your point there, you know, the, the most interesting thing about these conversations for me has been how many times I've changed my mind hmm. or how many times my opinion has maybe become a little deeper. Because again, getting back to the issue of the Supreme Court, I was very pro term limits. I frankly was also under the impression that the Supreme Court had become a little too partisan. Hmm. And in doing this, I uncovered that there are some negative consequences to term limits that would really outweigh the benefits, number one. And number two, I think we, again, just echoing something we've said a couple times in this conversation, right? I think that the fear of partisanship is overblown. I do expect, as far as Roe v. Wade is concerned, for better or for worse, I do expect people to vote along part. I do expect the justices to rule along partisan lines there. But when it comes to other issues, I don't necessarily expect that. I don't expect that conservative justices will favor Republican policies just because they're conservative justices. Yeah. So I take a little solace in that. And it brings me back. I mean, look, on this podcast, all roads lead to Rome, and <laughs> Rome is always the two-party system enabled by a first-past-the-post electoral system. Yeah, so sadly. We change that. We change the nature of partisanship. We change the nature of polarization. And we can go back to never having another goddamn Supreme Court hearing again, because I <laughs> broadcast anything else. Monster truck rally, you know, mud wrestling, the, the anything. Is, I'm, I'm a huge geek, and... If the questions they asked these judges were actually good, I kind of want to hear it because I think these are such smart people. I do want to hear how they answer it. But when the questions are just all for theater, forget it. What an yeah. epic waste of time, please. Nonsense. If the two of us are being like, not nah, had enough of that. <laughs> like if you and I together, I just spent the last month researching the Supreme Court in my spare time. Right. Right. If the two of us are saying it, I think that's fair to say, stick a fork in it. You know, through all of the acrimonious last 15 or 20 years of increased polarization, partisanship, the Supreme Court has made some decisions that certainly people have been very unhappy with, but I think has also largely ruled quietly, consistently, you know, according to a law. And we've said, well, I may not like it, but I can understand how they got to that conclusion. That's not bad. That's not bad. You know, sometimes I think we run our polls and I've mentioned this before, Dan, our polls are always like a yes, no, unsure. And I think yeah. in a lot of cases, the quote correct answer is probably unsure because these issues are really hard. And what I find yeah. is that many times a reasonable answer is some sort of compromise it's not going to be sexy. It won't be a great soundbite. It's a bit like term limits. We're not going to say go, you know, till life till you die on the bench. It's not also have short and re-elections and all the nonsense. Maybe there's a middle ground, like they should have cognitive tests or there's an age limit or maybe it's 18 years. There's just something else that's like, yeah. let's balance some of the risks as you get older and you may not be at the top of your game. That's also not giving any one president too much power over the future of this country. Um, so those are nice balances that we need to strike without necessarily going extreme like 
yes, hard term limits or no lifetime appointments. It just won't be a very sexy story, but I think that's kind of actually how democracy works. That's good. I think the folks listening can always rely on us to be unsexy. So we'll just (laughs) keep doing what we're doing. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving a really nice review on whatever platform you're listening to this on. This podcast grows by word of mouth, as you've heard. I will have a link to the Factuals poll in the show notes on ydhty.com. Just click episodes in the menu and a write-up on this series on the YDHTY blog as well. Now, biggest takeaway from this conversation and the three conversations I had prior, the problems people have with the Supreme Court and those of partisanship are one and the same. People suspect the Supreme Court of being partisan because the process for nominating justices is partisan as well. And since the filibuster on judicial nominees was eliminated, Supreme Court justices have been confirmed pretty much on a party line vote, leaving the other side entirely out of the conversation. And so it's probably no coincidence that a Gallup poll showed approval for the Supreme Court had dropped to 40%. That's the lowest it's been since they began polling 20 years ago. Now, it should come as no surprise that my belief is the best way to restore credibility to the Supreme Court is to address the hyperpartisanship that undermines the nomination process. And that can best be accomplished through electoral reform. You probably said it before I did. Now, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, we will be taking a short break from creating new episodes through the remainder of December with maybe a little surprise at the end in anticipation of the first 2022 episode on January 6th. You'll have to guess what that's about. In the meantime, we'll be pulling some great episodes from the vault for you to listen to. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you have a happy holiday. And as always, music courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.